Hebrews in the chapter 10, reading together from the verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereon too perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshippers once purged sin have or should have no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thy wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings, an offering for sin, thy wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering, oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins." But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore of the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, This is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, And in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Amen, and may the Lord bless even that reading of his word to our hearts afresh today. Well, as we have this opportunity to come together, we want to park our thoughts on this passage in Hebrews chapter 10 for the next number of weeks. I do so because in the past day or so, there has been a stirring in my own heart to answer a response about that verse that we read in verse 25, the last verse that we read together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For I believe it's true to say that there are two truths that stand out above everything else that should guide and direct us in the pathway of life. And that is the fact that Jesus Christ did come. And secondly, the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. 
And those two truths should guide us and should motivate us, should encourage us, should exhort us as we seek to live our lives here below. And you know, as we've been experiencing this time of lockdown over the last number of months, I believe it's true to say that we all on some level have been forced to consider and to reevaluate what truly is important in our lives. A correct appraisal of that, I believe, will inevitably lead us to conclude that the single most important thing in life is what we believe to be true about God. What we believe to be true about God affects everything else in life. It affects what we say. It affects what we do. It affects what we devote our time and our energy to. Indeed, it has affected how we have responded to the circumstances we have all found ourselves in and how we will respond as these days continue and as this season of life continues to develop. I was speaking to someone just this past week about this fact. And together we were lamenting how that so many today want to hear the message of kind and loving Jesus without mentioning the righteous and the holy judge, the one who is coming again to rule, to reign, to make war, and to overthrow the nations. And that reveals, that very desire reveals one thing, one characteristic about this generation above everything else And that is that we are a biblically illiterate generation. People who do not fully understand nor comprehend the teaching about God that is contained in his word. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the express, that is the manifested image of the Father. And as Christ himself said, they who saw him had seen God and they who knew him did know the Father. In fact, the Word of God also goes on to tell us that Jesus was full of grace and truth. And so it is wrong for us as believers to only desire to know about His grace and to ignore His truth. For the two go hand in hand. Sadly, even in a church like ours, there will be those, no doubt, who want to hear all about the grace of God, but want to hear nothing about the truth. Want to hear all about the love of God and nothing about the judgment of God. Forgetting that God's acts of judgment are defined to us as the very acts of his love. It's my responsibility then, I believe, as the pastor and as the preacher this morning, to remind you, and in the incoming today and in the incoming weeks, as God allows, that this must not be so in our lives. That we must not be imbalanced as we come to the word of God. But we must be people who preach and teach and people who delight to hear the preaching and the teaching of the whole counsel of God. Therefore, I bring you back to Hebrews in the chapter 10. I bring you back to where we all started. What you believe to be true about God is the single most important thing in your life. During the course of the conversation The gentleman also asked me, what was the biggest struggle I faced as a pastor? What was the biggest problem that I faced in the church? And I said that it's the same problem that I have faced for the last two years. And it's simply this, in our church, as in every church, there is a myriad of opinions about who God is. And that is seen in the way that we treat each other. It is seen in the way that we treat the house of God 
And it is seen in the way that we interact with the unbelieving world around us. And this morning I don't come to rebuke, but rather I come to exhort. For I desire more than anything else that you and I would be on the right page when it comes to our understanding about who God is. Now you may ask, how do people have so many differing views about God when we all read the same Bible? But we must always remember that knowledge and understanding are two distinct truths. For we can know something without believing it, without applying it. And therefore, just to know something is never enough in the Christian life. But we must understand the Word of God. We must apply it. And indeed, we must live it out. And so this morning, we come to preach this message, to begin this little series that's found for us here in Hebrews in chapter 10, a chapter we've already spent time in in the past occasions, but a chapter that we come back to because I believe it outlays for us the very key truths about the personality of God and the characteristics of the one that we come to worship. And I'm not coming this morning to preach a message of believe what I believe or do what I do. For I seek not to put myself forward as an example of anything. For I am a flawed individual and make many mistakes. But throughout my ministry, I have always sought to be faithful to the Word of God and indeed point you as the sheep that God has given me charge over to Jesus Christ, the one who is the perfect example. And so this morning I urge you to hear what God is saying to you For then you will know the truth of God as it's revealed in His Word. But I also remind you that there's coming a day whenever you shall be held personally accountable for what you know, for what you have heard, and for what you have failed to apply. And preaching and teaching can be described as just like going on a shopping trip to Tesco. For as you get your trolley and make your way through that store, it is your choice what you lift off the shelf and what you do not, just as it is when you come to the Word of God. But at the end of that shopping trip, there is always the inevitable coming to the till whenever the bill must be paid. And so too with the Word of God. For as you hear the Word of God, and as the Word of God is open and declared unto you, it is your choice what you take and apply to your own life. But there's coming a day for all of us whenever we shall stand before God and whenever we shall know what it is to give an account before Him upon that day. And I promise you that we all will realize just how important our belief about who God is, how important it is in our lives. And so we come to Hebrews and the chapter 10. Perhaps this is the greatest chapter of this entire epistle. It's truly a chapter whenever the writer of the Hebrews knows great liberty as he begins to share with them even what Christ has accomplished as God gave him that mission to fulfill here on earth. It deals with yesterday and its foreshadows in the verses 1 to 4. It deals with today and its rock-steady realities in the verses 5 through 9. And it deals with tomorrow and the blessed culmination of all that God's Word teaches in verses 13 through 18. 
And then it comes to that very important part of the chapter whenever the application of all that the writer of the Hebrews is seeking to convey to us must be made in our own lives, in our own walk, and indeed in our practice as believers together here upon earth. Enter in at the verse 1 of the chapter and we see, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Here he's reminding the people, the Hebrew Christians, remember, to whom he's writing, those who would have been raised in the law of God, those who would have been well-schooled in the law of God, he's reminding them that that law that they practiced, that that law that they were devoted to, that that law that they implemented and sought to implement consistently in their lives was only ever a shadow of what Christ would accomplish as he came to earth. And remember, a shadow in life is something which is real but it's also useless. The shadow of a key can never unlock a door. The shadow of a meal can never fill the belly. The shadow of a hand can never reach forth and rescue the one who is in need. And so too the shadow of the law could never fully redeem the people of God. For those offerings and those sacrifices which were made according to the law were only ever covered because of their adherence to that which God had instituted. For it took the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world to bleed and to die upon that cross in order that the law might be fulfilled, in order that the ransom might be paid, and in order that full, complete forgiveness could be known. So the shadow in itself, even of Calvary, would not be enough to save. There must be the full demonstration and then the full application of all that Christ accomplished there, if we are to know peace with God. The Bible tells us in verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sins. And he's reminding them that the sacrifices offered, they didn't remove sin. Why? Because if they did, would there have been any need year by year to come to the Day of Atonement like the children of Israel did? Would there have been any need time after time to bring the sin offering onto the high priest and ask for it to be offered on behalf of the giver so that their sins might be covered over, so that their sins might be atoned for, even as God's law made provision? Oh no, it took the coming of Christ. It was only ever a shadow. And the sacrifices carried the endorsement of Christ, but the endorsement of Christ came because he would be the one who one day would fully pay. And you and I know this system very well in our own world. Why? Because if we ever went to a finance house and perhaps were struggling to get some money together, we would be offered the option of borrowing money with a guarantor. That is someone who was willing to put their name on a piece of paper saying that if so-and-so wasn't able to pay, then I will step in and I will fully repay the debt that is due. And all through the Old Testament Scriptures, we are reminded that Christ was a guarantor of the law. He was the one who one day fully promised that He would come and pay that price, that He would fulfill the will of God there in Calvary's cross. And so the law only ever acted as a shadow. It only acted ever as that which pointed to the one who would come in the fullness of time and fully repay the debt that was owed. 
Come with me in verse 3. It says, No sacrifices there is a remembrance made again of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering I wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Christ knew that he came to be the fulfillment of all that God promised in the law. Christ knew that he came to be that guarantor, the one who would see the sin debt of you and of me, of mankind, fully and finally and forever paid. He came and he accomplished what generations of sacrifice could never do. Complete forgiveness. Restoration. Reconciliation with God. Come to verse 5 and it tells us, Again, there when he says, Wherefore, when he came into the world, this is the writer of the Hebrews reminding us of the great plan of redemption. That mystery that was in the heart of God and was only ever seen through a veil by Old Testament saints was then fully realized whenever Christ stepped into time. Whenever he came as a babe in a manger to Bethlehem, whenever he lived upon this earth as a sinless, spotless, paschal lamb of God, one who did no sin, one who could not sin but one who would in the fullness of time then offer of his life a ransom for all. And that great plan of redemption, the perfect solution to the problem of sin, it was brought down here to earth because a body was prepared for him. Remember, this is speaking of the Son of God who stepped into time, who took on flesh, who was manifested before the eyes of the people, who lived upon earth without ceasing to be God and was fully God yet fully man as he ministered for those 33 years. He fulfilled the plan of God. Come to verse 7 and tells us then, said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. And this was the mission statement of Christ. He didn't come for anything else but to fully pay the price due for sin, to fully complete the plan that God the Father had laid out. And here, uh, the writer of the Hebrews is referring back to Psalm 40 in the verses 6 and 7, where it tells us the law, the Psalms, and the prophets would all be fulfilled even as Christ would come. And you read through the Old Testament Scriptures and make your way from beginning to end and you will see consistently the theme of the writing is the anticipation of Messiah, the anticipation of the Savior, the anticipation of the way that God would make in Christ that you and I might know forgiveness of sins. Everything about Him is found in the Old Testament. Every detail of his coming, every detail of his life here on earth, every detail of his death, his resurrection, all were foretold and all were controlled even by the theme, by the message of this book. And you'll remember that as Christ hung and suffered on that cross, the Bible records these words, he knowing that the scriptures were fulfilled. Christ himself recognized that God had foretold and forepromised in his word that which would occur. And Christ, having fulfilled them all, then gave his life. He gave up the ghost in order that that word of God might be forever fulfilled. His submission to the will of God was what led him through his life. In verse 8 he says, Above all, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin, thy wouldest not, neither had pleasure in them which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You'll remember that that will took him to Gethsemane. 
as he left the upper room, having observed the feast that we just observed a few moments ago, he left singing psalms together with the eleven disciples who remained with him. And he took those steps that led him to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, he afresh yielded and submitted his will to the plan of the Father. It then took him to Gabbatha, the place of the pavement, where his visage was so marred, where his back was beaten and whipped with that cat of nine tails, where he was mocked and derided, scorned and spat upon. His hairs were plucked from his face and from upon his head, yet he opened not his mouth. No, it led him to Golgotha, that place where the once for all sacrifice for sin would be accomplished, where his life would be taken, where he would give his life in order that the sin debt of you and I would be paid. And it was once for all. Come to verse 11, it tells us, Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And if we see the will of the Father is continuing to be played out. For the will of the Father did not only contain the account of his death, but it also, of course, contained the truth of his resurrection. The fact that as we meet today, he is alive forevermore, seated at the Father's right hand, there to make intercession for his own. And today we serve a risen Savior, and that fundamental truth about who God is rests upon the finished work of Christ, our risen, exalted Lord. You see, that will took him to the grave. It gave him a crown, and unlike the Levitical one, who, the, the Levitical high priest who never sat down, Christ is forever sat down. The Levitical priest, his work was never done, but our great high priest finished his work and now is set until that day whenever he shall come again. And therefore, as we come to consider life, as we come to consider the truth about God's word, we remember the fundamentals. He came and he is coming again. And that's the rock-steady realities that you and I deal with today. For we are forever sanctified by His blood. We are ever, forever accepted in the beloved. And because of the finished work, we are recipients of an assured future. One that guarantees us to be at home in the presence of the Lord throughout all eternity. And that anticipation of the Lord's return is given to us there in the verse 13. From henceforth expecting Christ knows there's coming a day whenever he shall step back into this world. But this time it's not on a mercy mission. No, this time it's on a mission to make war, to overthrow the enemy, and to judge the nations. Every enemy shall be made his footstool. A total victory is his. And the bridegroom is ready. The bride is being prepared. And at the moment, those times and seasons that the Father hath put in his own power, they shall be forever united. And judgment on the enemies of the gospel shall fall. Now our present position is outlined for us. In verse 14, he says, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You see, you and I can reflect on what Christ has done. That has brought us to this point in our lives. We can anticipate that which is to come. But what about here and now? Here and now, God looks at us and he sees the perfection of Christ. 
Is it not a truly remarkable thought this morning that as we come with all our flaws and many failures, as we come recognizing and identifying the sins in our own lives, God looks at us and he sees the perfection of Christ in us and upon us. And we are accepted because we are in Christ. He hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Come to verse 15. Wherefore the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where the remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. And friend, this morning as we come to consider the Word of God, this is the key truth that we must remember. For as you and I delight to hear about the grace and the mercy of God that was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, we can never escape the reality of the judgment of God. For as you and I view Christ upon that cross, and as we know that there he gave his life an offering for our sin, that he took upon himself our sin, that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that is Christ who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God and him we delight in that. But how many of us fully recognize and identify that our wrath was upon him? You deserve the punishment that Christ bore. I deserve the punishment that Christ bore. It's not just enough to delight in His mercy and His grace without recognizing that righteous wrath fell upon God. Why? Because we are hell-deserving sinners. We were born in sin, shaped in iniquity, and sins that our mother conceived us. We, saw, we sinned by choice and we sinned by nature. But sin was that which he bore, that which he carried, and that which meant that the wrath of God had to be placed upon him. And so delight not just in his death and delight not as a free and full invitation to all who will believe, but reflect upon the truth that your sins nailed him to the tree. And oh, that that would motivate us I know that that would help us to recognize and identify all that Christ has accomplished on our behalf for you personally, for me. For doing so will radically transform our view of who God is and help us to live a more balanced Christian life. The three witnesses of the Holy Spirit are given to us in the New Testament. Here in verse 15, we're told that the Holy Ghost is the one who witnesses to us. He has covenanted, remember, to lead us into all truth. He is the one, remember, who has promised to open the words of Scripture before us. And if we struggle to understand the truth of God's Word, we must pray for the Holy Spirit of God to shine that light upon us. It's not just enough to say, oh, that book of the Bible's hard. I'm going to ignore it move on to something easier. We must pray. We must labor. We must ask for the help of the Holy Spirit, the one who witnesses to us. But also remember in 1 John, we looked at it in chapter 5 and verse 10, the Holy Ghost of God witnesses in us. He's that one who reminds us continually we are a child of God. He reminds us in those moments when we doubt, when we're attacked by the wicked one, but he also reminds us in those moments when we have choices to make, whenever we face the temptations and the trials of life. He it is who whispers, we are the children of God. Then in Romans chapter 8 and verse 16, we are told that the Holy Ghost witnesses with us. 
And that's why our motivation is seen in how we treat one another, how we treat the house of God, but also then how we treat the unbelieving world because we should be witnesses unto Christ for all that he has done for us. And it's the Holy Ghost who witnesses with us. Why is, all that, why is all that necessary in our lives to know and to remember? Because we are forgiven. Because we are the children of God. There, these things are afforded to us to give us that assurance of salvation, but also to guide our steps as one who is saved. Christ paid our debt there. Christ fully took upon him the wrath of God for our sin. And so as we come to the crux of this chapter, as we come to look at verses 19 through 25, we must realize all that God has done in Christ for us if we are truly to walk as children of the light. You see, with such a great salvation, with such a great means of grace, you and I don't come to observe ritual today. We don't come to observe tradition today. We have a right that is greater than that which was ever afforded to the children of Israel, God's own chosen people of the Old Testament. For you and I have this opportunity to enter into the Holy of Holies ourselves. We have this opportunity to fellowship and commune with our great high priest and with his Father. And we can come that new and that living way because of the blood that he shed. And as we continue our thoughts over the incoming weeks, we're going to look at verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We're going to look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the perfection of our faith without wavering. We're going to look at verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. And then we're going to finish up by looking at the not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. But as we enter into this study, we must fully comprehend the truth of all that God has done for us. You know, to neglect one part of that truth is to neglect the whole. To neglect one part of the simple message that is contained here in the Word of God is to neglect the whole because we will never fully realize the blessings that are ours in Christ. Oh, we will partially partake and we will partially enjoy and we will partially enter in, but partially will never be good enough. Partially will never unleash or release the full blessings that God has promised in Christ to the redeemed. And friend, we have that boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by that new, by that living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. But how many of us take that opportunity for granted? How many of us take that privilege for granted? How many of us do not fully enjoy nor realize the blessings that are ours in Christ? You know, as we consider that theme of neglect, neglect is an awful thing in any area of life. We hear stories of neglect about children, we hear stories of neglect about old people. We hear stories of neglect about vulnerable people. And all these stories just touch our hearts and our hearts break for those who know what it is to be neglected. The story is told of a 64-year-old woman who was found 
uh, having been passed away for roughly around five months. She was forgotten all winter and all spring by our neighbors and family. No one called on her. No one knocked her door. No one called round just to see that she was all right. She was described in media reports as being someone who didn't have much to do with anybody or anything, and nobody really had anything to do with her. But as an investigation was made into the truth about what happened in her personal circumstances, the reality of why she ended up passing away and being undiscovered for that period of five months, those who were investigating realized this truth, that two of her very own children lived less than three miles from her house. Two of her own children lived less than three miles away from her own house, but yet they never called to see how their mother was. You and I are shocked at such a truth. You and I are shocked at such a happening. We're shocked at such a reality. But perhaps for some of us, that's exactly how we treat the Word of God. Perhaps for some of us, that's exactly how we treat God himself. We neglect to fully enter in and appreciate all that Christ has done for us. I pray that as we come to consider these things, that God will bless these truths to our heart, that we will come expectantly week by week to hear these three truths expounded, and that God will work within us all to put us on that right page of understanding about who God is. For that will be of great benefit to our personal lives. It will be of great benefit to our corporate life. It will be of great benefit to this community if you and I fully realize and recognize just truly who is the God whom we adore. May God bless these words and thoughts to our hearts this day. And we'll pray together now. For God and our Father, we praise thee and we thank thee for all that thy word teaches us. We thank thee, Father, for the types that are given to us and we see in Christ the fulfillment of all. We thank thee for the promises that were given to us and we see in Christ the fulfillment of all. And we realize and identify the many blessings that are afforded to us. Oh Lord, may we realize and enter into them all. And may we not neglect even that which is of fundamental importance in our walk, in our talk, and in our journey here below. But may we have that right view of who God is. And may that right view dictate and influence everything else about our lives. For then, truly then, we will be living as those who are the light and salt that thou hast placed in this world, that others may see our good works and glorify our Father who art in heaven. Depart us with thy blessing as we go and take each one to their homes in safety. And we pray that the truth of thy word will find a resting place. For us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll sit just quietly for a moment or two and then the deacons will dismiss you. And God bless you as you go. It's been a delight to see each one that's gathered out. And we pray that the Lord will continue to be faithful to us in these days.